You know, every episode I try to figure out how do I actually open this episode up. You are listening to the Awoken Word podcast, and this is your host, Anudra Stogie. Today's episode's a little bit different. This is actually my first remote interview over Skype, and it's definitely a left turn from some of the previous conversations we've had on the show. Our guest today is Nikki Wells, also known as Turia. Nikki, to some of you, will be a household name. She's actually an incredible artist, just a fantastic vocalist who can sing in multiple languages and really bridges both East and West in a way that quite frankly, I've rarely ever seen. She is a longtime collaborator with the maestro Nithin Sani. Nithin is uh, one of my favorite artists ever, and when I first came across Nikki and heard her, I was absolutely astounded. We talk a lot about music, and that's part of what makes this episode a lot different than the previous ones. For those who know me. I am actually a music composer and producer. I've scored for film. I'm also a spoken word poet and writer. So the music and the art runs deep in me. And so it was really nice to have a conversation with somebody in some familiar territory. Anyhow, it was an absolute delight speaking with Nikki. She's incredibly humble, prolific, talented, and I felt a lot of hope for the world just knowing that there's artists like her out there. I guarantee you, if you are a fan of interesting music, of innovative music, you will not be disappointed in hearing the way that she brings these two worlds together in a very unique and masterful way. I give to you Nikki Wells. This podcast is my humble attempt to bring a full grain of sand of goodness to the beach of human experience. Inspiring. This podcast is my love letter to all of you. The Awoken Word Podcast. We are here live on the Awoken Word Podcast. I am, I am here with Nikki Wells. Uh, Nikki, thank you for joining. Thank you so much for having me. And Nikki, where are you right now? I'm in uh, cloudy London. And uh, it's cold and wintry outside. It's pretty amazing that we live in an age, although this is now at least 15 years old, I still find it amazing that we can be talking to each other virtually face-to-face across mm-hmm. oceans. Although I'm a bit of a nerd, I still pinch myself every time I'm in an airplane like 30,000 feet up wondering how this is possible. So, No, it's incredible. I mean, it's, it's amazing just to be able to talk to you while you're in Canada at the moment, isn't it? Right. Yeah. So, Nikki, we were talking just a little bit earlier about how I first uh, came across you. So, I have been a big fan and, and heavily inspired, I think, by a longtime collaborator that you've been working with, Nitin Sani, as a composer and as a musician. He had actually come out here, I believe it was first in 2008, with Ashwin and with Arif. They were playing another festival at that time. And I actually did an opening DJ set at that same venue before he went on. And that was the first time I got to see him live. And then he came back again in 2011. And when he started his set, you and and a few of the other musicians came up on stage. 
And then you started singing, and this will sound ridiculous, and you know, I mean it with all due respect. I was just completely shocked with what actually came of, out of your mouth. The incredible nuance in your microtones and command of the Indian raga and being able to ornament something just so authentically and never having heard of you, I was actually quite surprised. So that was my first exposure to you. I know you as an incredible vocalist. Uh, I know your sister also is a quite <laughs> an incredible vocalist and you both seem to obviously be cut from the same cloth. Um, <laughs> but on this side of the pond, Nikki, for the folks who don't know you, who is Nikki Wells? Um, well, Nikki Wells is a singer, songwriter, composer and producer. Um, I've been creating music, I guess I've been songwriting since I was 11, but I wrote my first song when I was around six. Um, I've lived in different places, including India. So when I was from six till 10 years old, I was living in India. And I think um, wherever I've lived, it's kind of informed my um, musical template, as it were, or my my palette, my painter's palette. So it's a it's a kind of element of nature and nurture, and I've kind of grown up with a lot of Indian culture within my own upbringing, which is why Indian music was not something foreign to me. It was something very natural, and I could pick it up quickly because I understood the being a child living there. You could you could pick up the nuances. Um, quite easily from 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 a from a young age so i met nitin when i was around 20 when i was studying music and um and i had learnt some shlokas which are ancient vedic hymns um when i went back to india after 10 years um and i happened to record them and then uh and uh, it's it's a it's a long story but to uh to, to cut it short, um, I was working with a producer whose studio was just opposite Nitin's at the time. And he told Nitin about me, that he was working with this blonde girl who loves, you know, Indian classical music. Why don't you come and listen to her? So he came into the studio when I was doing a session and, um, and I played him this shaloka and he, he, uh, he, couldn't believe that I was singing it because it was just, you know, you know, Vedic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's great, <laughs> you know. Um, and then he was like, can you sing this live for me now? Um, and I was like, sure. Then I sang it live. And then from then on, he just uh, essentially took me under his wing and, and I was part of his band for the last eight years. So it's been a, an in- incredible journey so far. And I think if I hadn't have met him, I probably wouldn't have delved into that world deeper because all of a sudden I had to sing on tour, you know, singing in <laughs> Hindi, Sanskrit, Marathi, Bengali, you know, all these um, languages from India. And it gave me an excuse to delve into it deeper, but essentially I'm, I'm self-taught musician. Um, and I, I guess it's being a, a chameleon of sorts. So within his band, I'd have to sing soul, jazz, English songs, um, Indian songs and um, I think it's just about you know music is about fluidity really and and I think it is hard when people get stuck in their own genre or their own kind of way of thinking for me it's about uh, like a fluid ocean which is unlimited the possibilities are unlimited and if you can open up your your 
your emotions and your mind to 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 that you can basically touch and resonate with anywhere in the world so i happened to have a history of 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 being of living in india but if i was living in africa it might have been the same thing who knows you know so uh, how long were you in india like from what age to what age from six years old to 10 i was living in himachal pradesh in dharamshala and um and then I went back there when I was um, around 19 and I studied the basic foundations of Indian classical music in a rural music academy uh, in Tane, three hours from Mumbai. Okay. And so that was my, my first training, as it were. And then my, le- my next training was just listening to the masters and the greats over the years. And so I haven't had a guru as such, though if I did, I'd probably you know, have benefited a lot more. But it's essentially just, yeah, learning and absorbing by ear and um, listening to, to the masters. And so, the, okay, first of all, that answers a whole bunch of questions for me because I've heard many singers who have in particular come into not even Indian classical, but even Indian folk, anything that has that, that Indian aesthetic. There is something very different from a Western aesthetic about that and internalizing that I don't think is just an intellectual exercise so the fact that you grew up with it the fact that you heard it it was so familiar it it feels almost like it would be it's sitting in a a subconscious level with you that now makes sense because I I actually didn't realize that you had lived you know for at least some of your formative years in India so that's that definitely helps me understand it a little bit better yeah when you say you had no training prior to when you came back to uh to tane so you have no formal western training or vocal training previously I've, I've had western uh training since i was around 12 or 13 and i've always sung singing has been like an extra limb for me it's kind of part of my personality and i think musical people it's just kind of part of them whether you're a guitarist it's like having an extra limb or whether you're a musical person i think you're either you kind of either have it or you don't and it's whether you hone it mm-hmm. um and and enhance it or you don't i mean some people are born with a knack for numbers for example you know and they're just they they if they hone it then they they you know go on to be great mathematicians or accountants or what what not but i think it's um yeah I've, i've always been a singer first and foremost and then i you know absolutely fell in love with how um they the approach to melody um, was in Indian classical music. And I just thought at a young age, how are they doing that, you know? And I've just been such a fan of the voice as an instrument. So then I would listen to lots of different kinds of singers. And when I listened to Indian classical singers, I would be mind boggled as to how they were technically doing that, you know? And mm-hmm. then, you know, it's a case of trying it out yourself, you know? I've had this question at points where people will try to understand what some of the fundamental foundational differences are between Indian classical and Western classical music. If asked that question, how do you explain it? Well, I think Indian classical music goes completely hand in hand with its philosophy, with Indian philosophy. You know, everything is cyclical. Everything is about life. It's the same, of course, in Western, but I think it's, it's incredibly spiritual 
of course it has its its technical and, and its sophistication but first and foremost it's about one's connection with oneself and their environment and the nature and how different ragas can be connected to the seasons and the times of the day and it's completely cyclical you know so you have cycles of beats rather than you know as we do in the the west time signatures um so i think because i grew up with understanding a lot of indian philosophy and mythology and things like that it kind of resonated and went hand in hand with that and also went hand in hand with my own spiritual kind of development as it were because it um it it kind of yeah it resonates with with it in a way the temperament of indian classical music um you know i mean i think all music you listen to you kind of become right you know in like if i listen to heavy metal music my temperament would match that if i listen to baroque my temperament might might match that if i right. listen to western classical you know it, do you know what i mean so indian classical you your your consciousness kind of matches that because you you kind of are whatever you do whatever you read whatever you listen to you are right you become yeah. I, I found one thing that people often find surprising. I mean, beyond the, you know, it's not really a one-to-one comparison between a scale in Western notation and a rag in, in Indian classical because of the progression, you know, the ascending and descending formats of the raga and the ornamentation and the phrasing, but also just this idea that there's another 10 quarter tones or microtones between the white and black keys on a piano. I find just astounds people. And I, I remember... I mean, I grew up here in an immigrant family with Indian parents, so music has always been playing in the house. It's sort of the cliched story of pretty much every South Asian musician, I think you would say, in the West, because that that figured prominently. You're listening to, you know, whether it's Bollywood classics or, you know, devotional music at home, and then you go out and then you might be hearing hip-hop or hard rock or heavy metal or whatnot. So it's all kind of coexisting at the same time. But I think when I first realized that there's actually notes slipped in between the white and black keys... Uh, yeah. where I consciously noticed that I realized it almost felt like if you've never seen maybe the color purple in your life, you've seen red and you've seen blue, you can't even conceive that there is a color purple when you mix those two. And I had this almost this strange feeling at that point where I, it was this whole other realization and just a completely different way of thinking about music as a result. And it was something that I think I had taken in innately, but I hadn't really intellectualized it in any way. And so when I, even just that little factoid that there's all these microtones beyond what's in the Western scale, I find for some people just blows their mind. Um, And, you know, especially if they can hear somebody enunciate that with, you know, some level of skill and mastery, it's like they're seeing purple for the first time if they've never heard it before. And I I find that just really uh, fascinating. I'm curious to know, so uh, you had, you've had Western classical training leading up till, you know, when you were back from India did you just automatically find yourself having those two worlds meet of Indian and, and Western, or did that kind of happen unexpectedly for you? I don't think it even happened. I think it was a very natural marriage of the two worlds because like I'm saying, the the idea of nature and nurture that you are kind of a product of your environment, but also you have natural tendencies that are part of your your fabric of self. You know, like if you're naturally musical, 
um, or naturally artistic or naturally mathematical, whatever. So I think that, um, I mean, because I have many friends, for example, who also grew up um, in the same school when I was in India, who are, who are not, who don't have the same feeling of Indian music as me and my sister do. In fact, our other sister who exactly had the same experience is not, as, doesn't necessarily resonate with her as much. So it's something unique about us and we happen to be identical twins. And mm. why is that the case? Who knows? It could be that, I mean, one could say, oh, you know, in your past life, you're Indian or something. Um, Oh, but it, I think it is something that that resonated with us um, deeply. It was a kind of a very natural understanding, and I don't think it just happened. I think it was um, it's something that evolved to go deeper um, in it because we've always had um, the same kind of fascination. I think we just understood the feeling. I think that's what it is. You can't teach it. You can't. Um, you can't really even ask someone to understand it. They either feel it or they don't. It's probably the same with gospel music. Like if someone just clicks and just gets it and they may not have grown up in the gospel church, they, but they feel it so um, deeply in their being that they can resonate with it and understand it and therefore kind of immerse themselves in it and then become it you know so i just think it's about we're like sponges as human beings right and either you kind of block yourself out from some information outside the world or you allow yourself to immerse in it and have it become part of you and i think that's where integration of the arts take place you know because there are you kind of de determine where are the limits, you know, what are the limits of what you're going to learn or know? And are they limited by culture? Are they limited by race? Are they limited by religion? Are they limited by borders or countries? And actually they're not, you know, and music is the one language which, which completely transcends all of those. And I think that's why it was quite e not, not easy, but natural to grasp this music. I've um, I've often said that I think music is the one thing that we have been able to create in a in the tangible experience of of life that actually is truly trans transcendental. It's uh, you hear a certain piece of music, whatever that might be, and it's going to be different for for everyone if your ears uh, and spirit are so inclined, but it will convey something that is so much bigger and beyond ourselves. I, I feel like that often when I hear, uh, you know, great music, great vocalists, and it's not necessarily limited to any one particular style, but you hear something that's actually communicable, right? I think there's so much about the human experience that's beautiful and that's brilliant and joyous, or maybe extremely depressing or sad or melancholy. All of those things are sort of the different shades of the human experience but not all of them are easily conveyed. And, oh. and I find that, that music, it sort of straddle, straddles that realm of beyond us and, you know, within our sensory experience at the same time. You know, I'm obviously biased as, as a musician myself, but I haven't found anything else that kind of transports you quite in the same way. I think that to a limited extent, for some people, it might be food. 
I just saw a speaker here at TEDx in Toronto that's a, he's a food writer. And it was actually really interesting because he talks about food in families' dishes. He's actually Sri Lankan and he finds when he has this, this specific stew his mother makes, it transports him back to a specific moment in time when he was 10 in Colombo uh, in this park. And it's very much like he, he's like, a, he, he called it a hyperloop basically back in time and space. So I think food perhaps does that, maybe smells do that for some people, but I don't know that anything else has historically brought people together across all of these atypical scenarios where we have all these divisions amongst each other. You know, it's just from different styles and genres of music, different ethnic backgrounds, I've performed on stage personally with musicians from Iran, from from Africa, everything from a, you know Yugoslavian vocalist to you know rappers and whatnot. And if people are wired to see the the similarities between us and the human connection there, all of this stuff just falls to the wayside. Totally, totally. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like that's what's real, and everything else, like all these kind of human man-made conceptions and ideologies and, and concepts, you know, as such, are complete myths. You know, I mean, they're complete, you know, money itself is a myth. <laughs> you know what I mean? I've just been reading this this book, Sapiens. Have you read it? Uh, it's actually right back there. I just right. started reading it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, you're going to get into it. I mean, the one sentence that just mind-boggled me was this amazing um, idea that the one reason why Homo sapiens and we as people have evolved to where we are is our collective belief in a myth. Mm -hmm. So whether that's money or politics or an idea and our collective belief in it has meant that it exists. And so I quite, I'm interested in what you're saying because it's like something like music, it, it, it's the kind of, I mean, I'd probably say it's the, it's what magic, it's the magic of, of the world, as it were, because it does just cut through all of these myths mm-hmm. of boundaries, of race, of religion, of borders, of even countries. They're all fake, like it's all myth. So it's, it's what, what, it's the thread that I think connects human beings together in a very, in the most elegant manner possible and of course you know food and and smells like you say also but music because it penetrates straight to the heart it can touch someone in in a deeper way than maybe you know a food can because that's also quite subjective like oh my mom's curry you know yeah it's not experience um but yeah i think it's and music today has also become a lot more portable because it's it's on your phone or whatnot so now it's um it's almost a soundtrack in our life like it's playing in the background at a party it might be that concert you went to it might be that show that you met a certain someone who's become special in your life or whatnot so I think because it's it's almost ever present it's everywhere and especially if it's something that's curated already by either someone who's opinion that you value or by yourself it just becomes a part of your life and now it's when you take a snapshot of that moment it's partly who you were with, what you were doing, where you were, and what was playing at the same time. And I think you're right, and you're totally preaching to think converted, because I've actually, I've heard a lot of uh, Yuval Noah Harari speaking about his book Sapiens, but also Homo Deus and, you know, his, his, his new book. And 
along with this idea that myth is really important to us, it's also this idea that we as a species are the the one species that have been able to collaborate in huge numbers uh, yeah. to for better or for worse, um, you know, throughout throughout history. And we're collaborating not just to eat, not just to survive. There's a story or a myth or something that's at play there that gets us to believe something that is either outside of us or that is bigger than us is the reason to go fight this war or to go save those people or to build bridges through music or what have you. And it's um, it's interesting even that you called politics and, and nationalism and borders and whatnot a myth because the moment you phrase it like that, it just reminds us how trivial these things are that these that we create these schisms between ourselves. Yeah, but we give it so much importance because we are in the system. Like it's like the Matrix; we're plugged into the system. But mm-hmm. as soon as we kind of um, see it for what it is, it's an absolute laughable joke, you know. And then, I mean, of course it determines how we live our lives it determines you know we, we are we are we are bound to it unfortunately we are slaves of it or it's kind of how we've constructed our reality but that's why you know as a creative i'm interested in in exploring the boundaries beyond all that and that's what music can do you can kind of you can you can uh, go into a boundlessness that where you actually begin to lose yourself. And I'm very interested in this idea of losing yourself because you you can find yourself so much more in the greater whole. And as soon as you kind of um, get so kind of stubborn on your own identity and the way or even your worldview and how you think you see the world, you start to become actually quite stagnant and quite maybe quite you know, egocentric or, or, you know, this whole thing of holding mm-hmm. on to something. So um, I've been, you know, practicing this idea of, of you know, surrendering to, a, to a, a greater whole, whether that's in a musical setting or just, um, you know, not being so kind of uh, precious about even my knowledge, but, but learn everything and then, you know, let it go so you can actually learn more because as soon as you know this is the whole thing about belligerent why we're having this whole problem with brexit and stuff Mm -hmm. when people are holding on to these ideas like oh the reason why we're having these problems is because we have too many immigrants and stuff these are just the same kind of knots in the mind that that have now created this this uh, you know an absolute um you know hiccup of a situation that i don't think anyone really knows what to do about it so um Definitely yeah. not Theresa May. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. So it's it's all quite worrying. But I mean, you know, that's also our condition as the, as human beings. You know, to to have conflict, to actually have obstacles, and how to overcome them. That's mm-hmm. probably why I think we're here. You know, I mean, I see it all a bit like a a hilarious, you know, video game. You know, or a simulated reality that we're all in, and you know, we we can we can. Um, you know you can you have the freedom to go anywhere you can do whatever you want and and, but it's kind of like you have to go through these kind of conflicts and go to these different levels of suddenly you find some realizations or something you go to the next level and it's you know throughout your life it doesn't end until of course your body does but um yeah i think if you see it all as a kind of you know little play it just makes things kind of ah more chilled it's more light it's kind of okay well you don't have to take yourself so seriously and just enjoy 
just enjoy, you know, being being here and, and meeting people along the way and collaborating and creating and and finding out more about yourself, you know, and yeah. Yeah, that it's an interesting perspective. I mean, like Shakespeare said, I'm gonna paraphrase, but you know, that all the world's a stage. I think when you realize that it does, maybe it takes the, the edge off uh, the situation a little bit. I find that with music, with art in general, but perhaps music specifically, it drops people's guard. Like if you, mm-hmm. if you like something, and I'm not talking about it at, a, at sort of a conscious level where you're filtering it through all of these preconceptions and societal distortions, but I think we as, as beings, however musically inclined an individual may or may not be, we're all rhythmic to an extent. I mean, from, you know, everything from, uh, you know, the heartbeat that you have to picking up rhythmic sounds that are happening all around us and whatnot. Oftentimes you'll find, and I've seen it happen where people that are clearly only at a particular show or a concert because their significant other or whoever dragged them along. And you can just sort of tell it in their body language. And all of a sudden their head just starts bobbing a little bit. Their body just starts moving. And they're unaware of it. It's at a sort of subconscious level. And eventually it sort of drops the guard that, hey, this isn't so bad. And I think when we drop our guard, it gives us an opportunity to get in some of these new ideas and have sort of an honest discourse that doesn't even necessarily mean, you know, we have to have these intense political conversations. But something that's unfamiliar, that was unfamiliar to you five minutes ago is now resonating with you. And if you're even remotely self-reflective, then it's an opportunity to think, hey, wait, what, what did I have wrong? What misconception did I have before this? And, and I think that's a really powerful, powerful force in, in, in music. And I think the other thing about music that's interesting is they're also systems, like they're systems of math as well. Uh, and, and this, this goes for essentially any music form. There's a specific relationship, a mathematical relationship between the frequencies of different notes, you know, your doubling or frequency when you're going from a, a C in one octave to the C in the next octave or having it when you drop down. And then whether it's Western classical or Indian classical, there's a relationship of notes, there's a relationship of harmony, there's rhythm cycles or time signatures. So these systems are logical in many ways. And if you understand the technical systems of it, it's not as purely subjective as perhaps some other things that we create are, but just technical mastery alone doesn't necessarily create the art. Like you could be technically proficient and still have absolutely no soul in your music. But I think because it's, uh, again, I'm, I'm overly biased towards music because I think it is both science and art at the same time. And it doesn't have to be one or the other. And we often find ourselves on either side of that religious debate over, is it science? Is it art? Is it God? Is it religion or whatnot? And music kind of puts all of that stuff aside, um, whether you like it or not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess because it it just, it cuts through. It is what it is. You know, it's very blatant. You can, and, you know, it's very visceral. You can feel it and you can, you can understand it. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about Obviously, you've been around a lot of different kind of music, and you've been working with Nitin. I know that you've worked with with Josh Stone in the past, and you've worked with a lot of musicians who I've had the pleasure to to know as well. Who have been your influences in life? Like, if you were to kind of, you're stranded on a tropical island, and you only have 10 or 15 artists that you could listen to, who comes to mind? (laughs) Um, Well, I did, you know... I have an English father and a Swiss mother. Um, and my dad 
um, introduced me early on to quite a lot of English folk artists because he was best friends with Nick Drake, okay. um, who's an English folk singer. Um, and so I grew up with people like Nick Drake, John Martin, and Joni Mitchell. And when I was 16, I fell in love with Jeff Buckley's music. And um, so a lot of the kind of singer-songwriter, you know, troubadour uh, singer-songwriters were definitely, I was definitely influenced by. And then when I was around uh, 18, and when I got into Indian classical music, um, that influenced influenced me massively, melodically most of all, simply because, you know, with Indian classical music, especially in Alap, you know, you're kind of stretching, time is stretched, and it's kind of like you're stretching uh, a fabric that is an elastic, and you're slowing it down and you're opening up, and like you're saying about the microtones, you know, you can kind of see them more clearly. Right. Because in, in, in the West, you know, even though there are microtones in the West, of course, you know, like a, a cello is, is a fretless instrument. The voice is a fretless instrument. Cause of, so, of course, you in a glissando, you are touching upon those microtones, but it's not part of the, you know, the, the style or the, mm. or the nature of the music. It just, you know, I completely fell in love with it, to be honest. Um, and, and I fell in love with the feeling that it gave, which I found incredibly emotional. And so, yeah, I mean, in terms of artists, you know, it was quite a, a chance that I met Nathan completely. I mean, it was it was uh, totally by, by chance. Um, and yeah, of course, I actually discovered his music when I was a student living in Australia when I was 16. And funnily enough, Homelands, we had to, um, we had to analyze just various excerpts of music in class. And then Homelands comes on and the strings, you know, mm -hmm. and suddenly this Kowali voice is, is bursting, soaring through. And then I just put my pen down and sat up in my chair and I'm like, who's making music like this? You know? <laughs> yes. And suddenly, suddenly, you know, my past of, of living in India and then, you know, growing up in the West, you know, these two worlds are married very elegantly. And then I really got into his music. And the strange story is that, um, you know, I was 16 on the way to, to school and I was listening to his music and I, and I threw this thought out at the view that I was looking at, which happened to be a tree in the distance. Um, oh, one day I'd love to be a featured artist on one of his records because I knew he had featured artists. Wow. Okay. And then, <laughs> and then bizarrely enough, five years later, I was now working with Nathan and we did a gig. We did a few gigs in Australia and I just got off the plane. I'm completely jet lagged and I'm so excited to be back in Sydney and see some of my friends. And I'm on the train to see one of my good friends. And I happened to be on the same train that went past my old school. And in the haze of my jet lag, I suddenly look out the window and I spot this tree and suddenly this memory shoots back to me of this thought that, or this desire that I had to one day, you know, be a featured artist on, on, and there I was now suddenly working with him. So I think the universe works in interesting ways and, mm -hmm. and, and it can conspire to your, um, desires if they are pure enough, I guess. Um, 
And and I don't know. I think um, yeah. I mean, so certainly in terms of artists, um, the kind of troubadour singer songwriters influenced me, and Nitin's work influenced me. And then I've also been very much into film music. You know, growing up with people like Thomas Newman's music, and right. and because I compose for films, documentaries, and particularly contemporary dance, I'm quite interested in instrumental music as well. So it's not only just songs or vocal music, but also instrumental music that I've kind of been recently delving into more in recent years. Interesting. It's funny, yeah, that both of us, uh, Homelands was that first, I guess, glimpse yeah. into, because I, I had no, no idea who Nithin was until a, a friend, she didn't even say, this is who it is, just put on the song. And yeah, same, almost yeah. an identical experience, I thought. Who is like it was something I couldn't conceive of, um, right. quite honestly. And then you're you're talking about being transported back to that moment when you pass the tree. I'm assuming you're. You, it sounds like you're referencing Khalil Gibran's A Prophet. I'm assuming that was a very overt reference there. To oh, I didn't know. No, it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, because uh, in the Prophet, uh, which is one of my favorite books yeah. of all time, but he very specifically, I think the quote is that the universe will conspire in your favor. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, we're very much on the on the same page there. And then, I guess now, your life as a musician is obviously, it seems quite an adventure, you know, from day to day, probably project to project and constantly being challenged. How do you find doing many different things at the same time affecting you as an artist and as a person? Well, that's a good question. I, I definitely think whatever project you're working on, um, teaches you, you know. Um, I recently did a, a contemporary dance show in Abu Dhabi and I'd arrived with a complete blank canvas, absolutely not knowing the direction of the narrative of the of the show, you know, or what we're going to do. And by seven days, you know, we had to have an entire show ready for wow. a performance, you know. And in that time, I probably wrote like two albums worth of music. You know, it was a solidly um, creative, potent, creative, intense time of creativity. But I absolutely thrived and absolutely loved it because it was just so, yeah, so creative and so fun for me to 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 just get all these ideas out somehow and and see what worked and what didn't. And and there were seven Turkish dancers who were who were dancing. Um, the piece which is with Akash Shudedra, who is the um, choreographer, and uh, the piece is called uh, Hashtag Je Suis. And so it was um, when I started working with contemporary dance, it kind of, the first thing that I realized is, oh, okay, do not create music. Okay, number one, cross music out. Mm-hmm. It's a, creating a sonic vocabulary to serve the narrative. And that's, you know, when when you're working with a in a bigger project, suddenly, you know, there's this beautiful humility of it's not about being, you know, the, the music has to serve the purpose of the narrative or whatever needs to happen, you know, on stage with the dancers or whether it's actors, you know, performers. So um, it completely changed the way that I made music and, and um, almost threw the rule book out the window. So you have to be, you have to start with a blank canvas. You don't know how it's going to end. Right. You're in the complete process of unraveling. And that process of, of unraveling is what I find just awesome. 
it would almost occur to me, having scored for feature and short films and other media myself, the film is usually done. It's in some rough stage. Uh, you know, it's either a rough cut or it's a near final cut or whatnot. But that, for all intents and purposes, it exists. And now you're scoring to it. You're trying to complement it. You're trying to help tell a story that isn't necessarily visually obvious. You're trying to draw out certain emotions that might not be on screen and whatnot. But I, I would almost assume that with a dance or live theater performance, you're not following what's already been created. You are now the foundation on which it's going to be created and yeah. improvised. Yeah, it's a, it's a collaborative process. And I mean, I've worked with Akash for the last six or seven years on all of his shows. Um, and we understand each other's creative um, minds quite well. So it's it's we can work off each other very nicely. And, and I think... Um, you know, whether it's doing music for a documentary or a film or, or dance, you know, I think it's the musician or the composer's duty to be open-minded, to almost um, come like a blank canvas and then experiment, being paint, just put paint on it, slop some paint on. And I think, you know, the whole creative process, whether you're a painter or musician, it's the same, you know, it's, it's about creating something from scratch and, and, almost being a child about it because mm. fortunately as adults we become stuck in our egos a lot more right. so than a child would and a child would 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 muck up and fail uh, very comfortably and we as we grow older as adults like are afraid to fail and i just think failure is is fine <laughs> you know yeah. and it's just learning you know constantly having this childlike learning process then yeah. you just yeah be free in your creativity yeah i've kind of said that uh at least to me failure is success in progress right like it's not just an end point and i think having having kids and watching them is just a is such a visceral reminder of right. just how untethered their minds really are. Like my, my daughter, like I'm, I'm just going to go into my whole dad spiel because I'm a huge fan of hers. <laughs> but she's, uh, she's incredibly creative. And I'm not just saying that just because I'm her, her dad, but she'll come home from school and from her after school program and she will make five or six different things. Like last in the last two weeks, she's made a vending machine. She's done an entire like three foot long mural of our solar system that went with all the planets and a few of the planets moons that she could remember all the way out to Jupiter. And then past that, there's a black hole that sucked up all the other planets. And then you can see the galaxies in the background. She's opened a store with some of her friends and she's apparently the chief financial officer of this store. And they were having a black Friday sale. So from day to day, she's going through all of these different things. And I have found she spent a fair bit of time in the studio here with me. And at one point I had three different uh, computer monitors here and I've got all my MIDI gear and everything. And I'm like, do you want to make a track? She's like, okay, just kind of sits down. And it took me years to figure out the relationship between the DAW, like, you know, I'm, I'm working in logic and then you've got your VSTs and you got your instruments and whatnot. And then you're running things through different effects and then you're dropping into a track. It, it couldn't have been more than 10 or 15 minutes of her, like just seeing me do a couple of things. Daddy, can you take this sample from here, from this folder? And can you put it through that whirly thing over there and then move this knob and then put it here? And she didn't have the vocabulary to do, but I knew exactly what she wanted to do. And she was just kind of, you know, riffing off stuff. And then we created a, a, a track because I have a bunch of uh, bonseries in the back, the bamboo flutes. And she just started playing around when she made like this random little loop that she was having fun with. So I just sampled it. I'm like, okay, we're going to, it's at 72 BPM. 
uh, just by coincidence. I'm going to record that. We're going to loop it and just you lay down whatever else you want. She laid down an entire track called Anushka's Flute Loops. And um, she beatboxed. She played the synths. This is before she was in piano lessons or anything. But no, at no point was she's like, did she say, I don't know how to do this, daddy. Uh, mm. What if it doesn't sound good or whatever? She just went for it. And it, you yeah. know, it came out. And I wonder when I look at so many adults that, you know, <laughs> that I'm around that where, where did that go? Like, why do we just start questioning ourselves so much and, and kill an idea before it even emerges? Yeah, I think it's, it's fear. And funnily enough, uh, you know, I remember having a conversation with Nathan about this and he's always had that, that thing as well. It's this, it's this, um, playfulness and music should be played. It's a playful, you know, that's why they say, Oh, I play music. You know, it's, it's, uh, mm. it's, um, and, and I think those, those barriers are unfortunately fear that we, it's almost, it's strange. I mean, I love this quote that, um, Picasso said, whereby when he was a child, he was always trying to draw like an adult. And then as an adult, he was always trying to draw like a child. That is interesting. Yeah. I hadn't heard that. Yeah. So it's, it's this idea that, you know, for some reason, as we grow older, we become more insecure or more stagnated or more uh, have more fear than a child does because they're just more, you know, untainted by, I don't know, the, the, the difficulties of the world or the responsibilities and the stresses that we have. Yeah. How old is your daughter now? She's seven now. Right. Yeah, she's wow. seven. She started piano a, a few months ago, and she's actually picked up a lot faster than I had anticipated. And, and again, I think it's just because um, she's not worried about whether it's going to work or not. And so far, she's enjoying herself. So she just kind of goes with it. I find many, if not most kids kind of think this way. And then, yeah, I mean, you're very right to point out, I think the entire system that we live in is essentially, it, it's been outfitted to run on fear and uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And it's been outfitted to run on self deprecation, but not in a good way, right? Like, I think for most kids, you know, at least early on in life, they love themselves enough to kind of value themselves as as individuals. And they're not necessarily wanting for material things and validation from others per se to necessarily create a sense of self-worth. They kind of just are in the moment. They just are and they're existing. And then over time, like, uh, you know, the, the journeys of life and society and whatnot kind of throw this stuff in your face. And then you start to wonder like, maybe I should have that car. Should I have that house? Should I be wearing the same jacket that everyone else in school is wearing and whatnot? And the system as it is, if it weren't for that fear and uncertainty and trying to close that Delta between self-worth and where you'd like to be, the way that we close that is by buying stuff, right? Is by going out and purchasing is by going out and finding some external way to kind of close that sense of self-doubt and whatnot. And we definitely need to make a change, but it is also how the system runs today. And so I think it's interesting as a parent, seeing all of this coming, being very acutely aware of it, and then also knowing that she's hearing, you know, and and my son's hearing this stuff in the schoolyard and from friends and whatnot, and just trying to figure out how do we get ahead of this and and get her to, you know, still believe in herself as much as possible. Because the, the world isn't necessarily wired to, to help you do that. No. Um, I mean, I think it's about opening a dialogue. Like, if you can have these important conversations as a family, mm-hmm. it creates a security within the children. I think open dialogue is important wherever you are. I mean, it's, 
it's um it's growth you know and that's exactly what you were saying about your friends where you could have these deep conversations and philosophical conversations with because most people you know they don't talk of things necessarily of substance you know actually <laughs> you know the majority of our attention is on very kind of um superficial things you know like material things or or just even if you think about collectively you know even if you've just put on the radio and the content of the lyrics and the content that were being spoon fed, you know, in the news is, is it just puts you in a almost quite, quite depressing place because there's not that much substance. So if you can have, you know, friends or family or groups of people where you can truly, you know, debate and, and, and get one's teeth into these incredible, you know, subjects of self-development and creativity and, um, asking questions about the world and asking questions about questioning the system and questioning right. things, you know, it's, it's what helps us, you know, grow and, and get, you know, I think that dialogue is always important and especially through music. I mean, you can, you can, you can, uh, communicate so much just, you know, with that medium. Yeah, absolutely. So kind of hearing you speak now and, and, and here's some of your thoughts on this. I'm curious, there, I, I've heard sort of two schools of thought on this. When it comes to people who are artists or have some sort of public platform, it might be athletes or celebrities or public intellectuals or what have you. Do you feel that somebody who has got a platform, uh, and particularly if it's artistic in nature, is there any greater responsibility on them to stand up for or expose or talk about things that are, are important? Or is it a, sort of an unfair expectation of anyone to have greater or lesser responsibility to do that? Well, I do think um, creatives or essentially performers more so than creatives necessarily do have a sense of a duty to have something to say because it's kind of what society's ears are pinpricked to listen to because you know heck politicians you know are lying to your face where are people going to turn okay so they're going to go and buy tickets to see a gig and they they kind of expect to be moved they expect to, to for something to happen or they expect for some honesty to take place and i think as um especially being a singer songwriter i've myself felt this sense of duty to be honest mm -hmm. um to be honest with myself and vulnerable, you know, to be vulnerable. And if you think of a stockbroker in his office, you know, he's not necessarily, you know, he almost has to be more on his guard and guarded to be in the world of business because it's absolutely ruthless. But then he might go and buy a ticket to a show and suddenly he's listening to some um, singer songwriter and the guitar and, and he can feel moved um, or, or he's listening to something that he can relate to. So I do think definitely um, there is a certain amount of responsibility to be honest, to be vulnerable, to say something that um, has meaning, that has importance in the time. I mean, I love, you know, if you if you look at movements like the civil rights movement, for example, you know, music went hand in hand mm -hmm. with that movement. You know, James Brown, Nina Simone, Aretha Franklin, you know, respect, that song was all about, about that. And, you know, um, and James Brown, you know, say it loud, I'm black and proud, right. you know, I mean, music went hand in hand with that movement. And so 
absolutely, you know, there is an absolute responsibility and duty, you know. But beyond that, I think that at the end of the day, we as people have a responsibility by just changing ourselves and facing ourselves honestly and I don't think you can change the world <laughs> you know the world is going to be as it's going to be you know there's mm. we can kind of like shout through a megaphone about it but there's not much you can I think you know what, what is probably um, a more uh, powerful way to change the world is is like michael jackson just said you know to change yourself first you know and that changing that look at that man in the mirror you know um and if you can change yourself to be the best person or you know to fulfill your your most potential in this lifetime then frankly i think you're doing good to the world so you know if you can really face yourself honestly honestly and um and you know not be uh, hypocritical, um, then that is doing a massive service to the whole of humanity. Mm -hmm. First of all, agree a million percent with everything that you've just said. In your experience, do you believe most people that you come across, do you think they realize what everything that you've just said already, or would this be news to them? Um... I don't, I don't know. I think it depends on what their interests are. I mean, I've, I've grown up with a family who are all quite conscious of what's happening in the world. Um, you know, over the dinner table, we'd, you know, talk about things that had, uh, that were important to whoever brought up the subject and, um, or I've had friends who, um, wanted to find more meaning within themselves and and so i think it is you know the people who we hang around with um you know how they help us grow mm-hmm. and i you know i people can either help you grow or descend you can either ascend or descend you know and everything you do in life can be that and that's why it's a choice you know you have these choices you can either um, you know, and that's why these formative years of teenage years are very important because you can have a group of friends that are bad influences or something, or you, they just don't uh, challenge you mm-hmm. enough to to grow, or you just slip into this kind of, you know, what everyone else is doing, which is, you know, sl- slightly self destructive, perhaps. Um, and I, I just think it's about you know, one has to know who they want to be, or, you know, one has to have some kind of hunger to, to find more meaning. Uh, and I think this is part of human nature. We're always, we're always digging the sand for answers, for perhaps more meaning, for, for feeling um, something more true. Um, and, you know, being, I think, creatives are, are, are people who, who are constantly digging, right. you know? right. Music education, do you think that, uh, like, where, where does music fit in, into, into life for most people? Like, do you think that society would be better off if we had more music education and proficiency across the board? Uh, for sure. I mean, I think, you know, if you, I mean, there's like some TED talks and some YouTube videos of, you know, if someone picks up an instrument, they're working on so many aspects of their brain. Um, you know, the, the lingual aspects, the visual aspects, the motor neuron aspects. Um, so it's, it's great for development of a person in general, even if you didn't end up being a professional musician. Right. 
Um, for me, I have to say that um, what helped me a lot was jamming. Um, and when mm. I was seen living in Australia, there was um, my friend's house was on a street called Crown Street. And every Wednesday night, all of the musos from Sydney, you know, from the jazz cats who just finished playing a gig um, or, you know, anyone would just rock up at uh, Jesse's house on Crown Street and we'd all jam. And jamming was this kind of walking on a tightrope type of basis where you're listening, you're, you're, you're communicating, you're collaborating, you need to know when it's enough, when to stop, when mm -hmm. to start. And this, and it's really walking the tightrope. And I think, you know, if there were communities or collectives that could encourage youth to jam, to create, to just, it's basically the opportunity, right? metaphorically speaking, just it on a canvas and then just move it around and, and then add another color. And it's just that process of starting, which I think is fundamentally important. And it's fun. It's, it's scary. Right. And I think that about the fear and scary is really important. I mean, I love this saying of do something, do one thing a day that scares you because it means that you are challenging that fear and right. you're just doing it. And then it gets to a point where you're not afraid of it anymore. Um, so I think just plunging into the unknown can be scary, but it's so important and it, and it's, it's what, you know, it's what creates development and the most successful people in this world are those who have plunged into those pools that others just wouldn't, you know, right. I mean, how does like someone like Elon Musk create, you know, the companies mm -hmm. that he's done, if he hasn't just, you know, had a, a, a more lateral way of thinking, you know? Right, right. I think it's interesting that you bring up jamming, uh, and I hear you on that. I, I feel like some of the most incredible moments I've had have been while jamming, especially with, you know, it's great to jam with people that you know, um, because you kind of have a feel for where they might go with something. But having, you know, a complete rogue element in there that you've never kind of worked with all of a sudden throws you off, and then you have to, you have to, you have to work with that. And that's, I think that's interesting. I, jamming both musically but i think even outside of that 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 idea is that you're creating something together and so that you are bringing your own strengths and weaknesses to the table and you're cognizant of both your strengths and weaknesses at the same time in this effort of creating something bigger than yourself together and i think that's just something that we don't do enough of and i think that dynamic it could be you know uh, science fairs where, you know, you get a bunch of students, ha you know, given a problem that they have to solve with limited resources or limited time. You see this in the, in the, the software development world with hackathons a lot where you're putting a time constraint, but you basically have people using their unique skills to solve a single problem. And, uh, you know, in many ways, I think jamming with music is like, is that you're constantly trying to solve a problem, which is how do I make this sound good for everyone? So I, I think it's interesting that, that you bring it up. I think it could apply to anything creative, though, because, I mean, for example, mm -hmm. I've started um, pottery, for example, okay. um, which I've completely fallen in love with. And it's, you know, it was, it's this essentially, you know, you're, you're, you're creating a pot or a cup or something from scratch. Like it's a, you know, and, and, and I hadn't really had any training at all, but, it's in it's it's incredibly intuitive, you know, how to do it. 
and um, and then all of a sudden now I'm I've created a merchandise brand for called Toria Pots, which oh, which wow. is part of my my singer songwriter. Um, you know, so I'm selling them as part of my merchandise. So it's it's a kind of um, just just doing it and getting your hands mucky, mm-hmm. metaphorically, literally, is something I would always um, encourage. What does uh, Turia mean? Turia is a Sanskrit word. There are quite a few meanings to it, but the one that very much resonated with me is that it means uh, the silence that one experiences after sound. Mm. Um, if you, for example, and this goes, you know, back to the Om, you know, the Omkar, which uh, can be, you know, dissected into essentially four different dimensions, the A, the U, the M, and after you are supposed to utter the Om cor- correctly, then you experience the silence after the sound. So Turiya is is this, um, it's also, it's known as Chatura, like the fourth state, whereby you have dreaming, dreamless, and uh, you, and waking. And generally we are in either three, we're either, you know, awake, consciously awake, dreaming or dreamless. And then the fourth is Turiya, which is beyond that. And what I liked about it is that it's kind of like the, you know, it's the white in between the black and white on the words, or it's the mm-hmm. silence between the sounds, it's the space between um, objects. And I wanted that silence to represent my sound as an artist, so that Turiya becomes an experience that the, that the listener can come to a gig and hopefully walk out in a state of silence. I love that. It, uh, it reminds me a lot of, and again, I'm paraphrasing, I can't remember the quote exactly, but I think it was Miles Davis that said something like, you'll, you'll know whether it was the wrong note or not based on the next note. Right. right. Um, but also the, it's, the, it's the notes you don't play, it's the silences that you leave that make a, a huge difference um, in that. That's fascinating. I'm curious because you're obviously, you know, a woman of the world. I mean, you've lived around the world. You, uh, as an artist, obviously are internalizing a lot of things. In the climate that the world is in today in particular, especially right now with all of the uncertainty in the UK with whether or not Brexit is happening, is not happening, whether there's going to be a people's vote or not. When you look out at what's happening within the country and what people are talking about, what you're hearing, how do you feel about this situation and how do you think that we can avoid such situations in the future? Oh, that's that's a, a massive question um, that I don't know um, how much I can, um, in my humble kind of amount of knowledge, uh, do justice to. But, I mean, it's, it's a worrying time. It's a question mark time. You know, we don't know what's going to happen. We have to be very, I think, realistic, pragmatic, and um, you know, a, a lot of a lot. There's a lot of selfishness going on, obviously, in politics. And people, yeah, you know, at the end of the day, it's about money, right? So, people are just trying to save themselves, and they're not they're not caring about the next generations. It's it's incre- It's you know, it's horrific and unbelievable that there are human beings out there who would do that. But such is the case. I guess you know, as a as an artist. Like I said earlier, I, I I have the responsibility just to kind of speak my truth and be true to who I am and 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 try to write things of substance and meaning and, and hope that it acts as some kind of transcendence in someone else's life. 
or peace in someone else's life um, or gives a sense of um, everything's okay, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, th- there is so much uncertainty in the world and, and there is there is so much of everything, you know? But I think where th- there is always the counterpart. I don't think this world is just light or dark it is you know it's everything and the shades in between so it's about where you want to put your attention where you want to put your time where you want to put your heart and your energy and um and then what you can contribute to in in that you know so um i personally just want to do my part in creating music or products or um experiences that are meaningful and that are hopefully resonating with other people and that's all i can do in my small limited body in this lifetime is to try to do um the best that i can and to try to change myself to be the person that that can fulfill my highest potential and i don't even know what that is it's an Mm -hmm. evolutionary you know so i don't think you can even know the answer and we're probably not supposed to know the answers we're supposed to be in the journey of unraveling and and right. that's all we can really do you know uh, i just wanted to come back to the the performance you were mentioning you created all that music in a in a whirlwind for in, in abu dhabi when you were writing that volume of music so quickly can you talk to me a little bit about the state of mind you were in? Like, was it a flow state or did you have a hard time going from, you know, an idea to actually creating and putting it down? It was completely fluid because there was the, um, there was a brief and a boundary of what I needed to do. I had a, I had a hotel, <laughs> I had a studio and I had a cafe where I could have lunch. So that is all those limiters mm. uh, gave me the structure. I knew where I needed to work. I knew where I needed to go to sleep after work. I knew where I needed to eat. And there was a kind of structure in place where it made me work much faster. And I think, you know, being self-employed, which I am, it's very difficult to find this sense of discipline and even stability in the world of creating. Right. You know, you ask yourself sometimes to like a song or to, you know, and, and unless you had certain limitations, like, you know, say even just the, 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 the luxury of having your own studio or having um, a brief even to work to, mm-hmm. it limits you to kind of propel you forward to, to, to that. And then, you know, that process for me was incredibly fluid and I was thriving off it. Um, and I, I had so much energy. I didn't need to sleep, you know, <laughs> at all, you know, because I was just thriving off that really enthusiastic energy of creating. But sometimes, you know, if there are, excuse me, if there are, um, if there isn't that structure in life, things can become a bit more muddled and a bit more, um, you know, stagnant, you know, so I think we have to be our own teachers, you know, as well as our own students, you know, we have to be our own parents as well as the child, you know, we can't expect anyone to do anything for us and we can't expect any, uh, anyone to tell us what to do. We have to try to, you know, inject some kind of discipline, um, you know, as a creative. I find, um, the creative process is so, uh, it's an interesting one, especially for people who don't necessarily see themselves as creative. I, I believe all people are inherently creative. It may not be in the form of 
artistic creation. It might be in many other ways, but you know, we put barriers on ourselves. But I, I do find having those limitations really does help sometimes. Years ago, I did. Uh, it was actually the first big concert that I'd produced in Edmonton, which is out west. And I woke up this one morning, and this is back in 2002, so it's just, it's quite some time ago. And for some reason, I had this crazy idea: what would happen if we put doublas together with Japanese taiko drums? Because I had just stumbled across taiko. I don't even know how, but like just a, a, a few days before that. And then I found that there was a, a taiko group in Edmonton called Kira no Taiko, and I reached out to him and said, "Hey, I'd, I'd love to talk to you guys about an idea." And uh, so I went there, I saw them play, and then there was, I think, 17 or 18 of them rehearsing. And then they're like, so what's your idea? So I explained it to them, and they're like, you're crazy. First of all, we don't even know what any of those instruments are. And when do you want to do this concert? I'm like, well, I have a venue that I can get in six weeks. So we can make six weeks, this is, this is insane. Okay, let me bring the, the group of artists I'm working with, see what they do. And then if you see, if you can hear the vision at that point, then great. And if not, you know, nothing lost. So I had already been working with someone who's become a very dear friend and a huge influence and inspiration for me, Cassius Khan, who lives out West. He's the only professional artist in the world who's a, both a masterful ustad on the tabla, but an incredible ghazal singer. And he accompanies himself on tabla while he's singing ghazal. And it's just, is mind-blowing to see someone do any one of those independently, let alone at the same time. Yeah. So him and uh, his now wife and some other friends that we were working with, different musicians. So long story short, six weeks later, managed to put on the show with a 15-person taiko drum team, tabla, sitar, Ukrainian dulcimer, electronics, Bharatnatyam, Katak. We had a closing piece, which was basically an arrangement that we had uh, co-composed that moved between a 4-4 time signature and a 7-8. So we introduced Rupak-based Bharatnatyam when they had a 7-8 taiko piece. The whole thing was just kind of bananas. And this was far enough back that definitely not in this part of the world was really anyone doing this. But it was just amazing because... First of all, mo- almost nobody in the t- in the taiko drum team was Japanese, and now they're seeing all these other instruments from around the world. And you know, they went on a whim with some crazy guy's idea. But as soon as they heard it kind of come together, the idea just manifested for everybody. And uh, I, I just find I found that because we had such a tight timeline, we managed to pull together as a result of that. And that creative process just it just kind of unfolded because people believed that it might actually work. Yeah, yeah, definitely, right. I mean, that's a great example, again, of, of how when you have even a deadline, mm-hmm. you know, how you actually, you know, okay, guys, we need to uh, put this all together. And then, you know, you have a result. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, Nikki, you've been incredibly gracious with your time. And speaking of light and dark, it is barely light here, but it is now dark there, clearly. Yeah, it is. <laughs> um, before we kind of sign off, where can people find out more about you? And do you have any sort of known plans of coming back to this side of the pond anytime soon? Well, I'd love to um, come back to Canada. I have released my album um, under the name Toria called Ocean, and it's my debut album. And it's now released completely worldwide. Wonderful. Uh, it's you know you can you can find it on iTunes and Spotify and on all of those platforms and at the moment I'm just writing new material and I'm already going to be releasing uh, an EP and then I'm just going to be constantly releasing new music um I'm doing as Nikki Wells um 
composing a few projects. I'm actually going to be in India in January to do a play called The Pink Sari Revolution, okay. which is a, the Gulabi gang uh, fighting for women's rights and, and right. against women's violence. So I'm starting that project um, and then have, you know, a few compositional projects as well down the line in 2019. But I will certainly be also um, touring as Turia, hopefully um, coming over the pond um, to Canada one day, but as everything to be confirmed. Um, you can find me on all of those social media platforms, whether it's Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all of them, um, under Turia Music, T-U-R-Y-A. Um, I changed the spelling of it on purpose. But, yeah, so it's T-U-R-Y-A um, Music. And, um, yeah, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you, Anuj. Thank you so much for having me. Wonderful. No, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I'll be posting the links to work and whatnot on awokenword.com. But thank you so much for your time. I hope that we do get a chance sometime in the future to kind of pick back up on this. Uh, it was wonderful to speak to you. And I, I feel, I actually feel much better about the world just knowing that there's, you know, uh, artists like you out there. Whatever I already thought about you, you've just uh, only reconfirmed and, and exceeded that. So just thank you so much for doing what you do. That means a lot. Thank you so much. Thank Wonderful. You. That's a wrap. If you'd like to support the Awoken Word podcast, there are many ways you can do it. You can subscribe in your app of choice. We're on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or TuneIn, for example. The biggest thing that you can do is rate this podcast and leave your review in iTunes or wherever you listen to it. You can also talk about this podcast, its guests, or the ideas shared on it in your own podcasts. If you find benefit in this show, tell your friends, tell your family, and even more importantly, tell your enemies. They'll appreciate it too. And of course, you can also follow us on social media, particularly on Twitter. Our handle there is at Awoken Word, on Instagram as at Awoken Word Podcast, or on our Facebook page. Thank you. Your support is greatly appreciated.